Our gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for um, the gift of the Sabbath. We thank you for this time that we have um, to come before you, to study your word, to, to look upon the cross, to walk through the sanctuary, um, and to understand afresh what Christ has done for us. Father, we pray as we open your word this morning that the Holy Spirit would be here to speak to our hearts and convict us. We ask, Father, that Christ be seen, be heard, be lifted up, and that we all be drawn closer to him as a result of our study. Speak to our hearts, we pray, as we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to ask you um, to open your Bible to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Um, when you get there, you can say amen. Romans is arguably um, one of the most exciting, but also one of the most difficult books in Scripture. And not going to attempt to do an entire exposition of the book this morning, but I just wanted to share with us a couple of thoughts um, from Paul's writing on, on justification, on the grace of God, and on the free gift of God um, through Jesus Christ. In 1829, um, two men, their names were George Wilson and James Potter, robbed a U.S. Post mail carrier. And they were later um, convicted, I mean, tried in a court of law, and found guilty of six charges. Among those charges was the robbery of the U.S. Post carrier, but they were also found guilty of putting his life in jeopardy, which means they essentially endangered his life. Now, the U.S. Post carrier survived, but they were found guilty of that, that robbery and that um, attack that almost literally led to the loss of his life. And so as a result of that trial, um, they were found guilty. They were both sentenced to execution by hanging. And they were due to be executed on July 2nd, 1830. Now, James Porter was actually executed right on schedule. But George Wilson was not, somehow. And what ended up happening is George Wilson had some very influential friends. And these friends of his pleaded for mercy with the then president of the U.S. I'm going to guess, anybody know who was president in 1830 of the U.S.? Where are my historians, President Andrew Jackson. So George Wilson's friends pleaded for mercy with President Andrew Jackson, and they, um, they made the case for him to grant a pardon to George Wilson, and as a result of the intervention of his friends, Wilson was granted presidential pardon. And George, I mean, President Jackson, in granting this pardon, I'm going to quote his words here, he said, I... Andrew Jackson, President of the United States of America, have pardoned and do hereby pardoned, pardon George Wilson the crime for which he has been sentenced to suffer death, and I remit the penalty aforesaid. Andrew Jackson signed the pardon, effectually remitting the penalty and allowing George Wilson to walk almost scot-free without being executed. The remarkably incredible thing is that George Wilson refused the pardon. Now, if you imagine somebody who is literally on death row, waiting to be executed, waiting to be hanged for a crime he was guilty as charged of committing, 
being given pardon from the highest authority in the land, the President of the United States himself, would have been an answer to prayer. It would have been the, the one thing that, would, that he would have been waiting for, hoping for, and really just anticipating if, if at all there was any chance how happy he would have been to receive this pardon. But George Wilson refused the pardon. And so then it was a bit of a conundrum. You know, here's somebody who has been pardoned by President Jackson, but has refused the pardon. What do we do? Do we hang him or do we not hang him? The, course, the, the case went to the U.S. Supreme Court. And the court deliberated, what do we do in this case? And I'm going to, um, to, to read for you the words of Chief Justice Marshall, who delivered the opinion of the court once the court decided on the case. And he said this, a pardon is a deed to the validity of which delivery is essential. And delivery is not complete without acceptance. The pardon may be rejected by the person to whom it is given. And if it is rejected, we have discovered no power in this court to force it upon him. What Chief Marshall was saying is incredibly profound because he says, look, a pardon is a deed. In other words, a pardon is a piece of paper. It is something that the president has signed, but it is a piece of paper. And that piece of paper, the power of it to effect change depends upon its acceptance by the one who has been pardoned. If the pardon is not accepted, it is not a pardon. And if the person who has been pardoned doesn't accept it, we, as the highest court in the land, cannot force the pardon upon him. George Wilson was hanged because he refused to accept the pardon given him. And it strikes me so profoundly because you and I, more than just presidential pardon by the highest authority in the land, the, the most powerful man in the land, we have been given pardon by the very king of the universe. And the question is, that pardon, as it is explained in scripture, that pardon is ineffectual unless we actually accept it, friends. Pardon that is not accepted is not pardon. In the book of Romans, Paul makes a case that all of humanity is guilty before God. The question of justification by faith, which is what, when, as we walk through the sanctuary, the courtyard with that altar of, of burnt offering and the lava, the lava of, of, of bronze, the, representing both the cross of Christ's justification, but also the regeneration and renewing by the washing of of water, the Holy Spirit, that work of justification, really the question of justification is the question of how does man stand before the divine judge? In other words, how do you and I stand before a holy God? Do we stand righteous before God? Do we stand guilty before God? When Paul is answering this question in the book of Romans, he makes the case that all of us, Jew and Gentile alike, stand guilty before God. In Romans chapter 1, in verse 18, <clears throat> Paul says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress truth in, righteousness, in unrighteousness. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, because God has shown it to them. 
For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead. And one of the reasons I love Romans is the the depth of the language with which Paul writes. When he says that the invisible attributes of God are clearly seen, you ask the question, Paul, how can something that is invisible be clearly seen? <laughs> you know, it's, um, I don't know if it doesn't strike you, but it really, how does something that is invisible be seen clearly? And Paul says that the invisible attributes of God, his eternal power, his Godhead, are clearly seen through the works of his creation. And Paul is essentially making the case in Roman, that latter half of Romans chapter 1 that the Gentiles are guilty before God because though they could have known God, they did not glorify him as God, so they're guilty before God. And then lest you think it's just the Gentiles, in chapter 2, he makes the argument that even the Jews stand guilty before God. And so he sums up this argument in verse... 23 and 24 of Romans chapter 2. You who make your boast in the law, do you dishonor God through breaking the law? For the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you, as it is written. And so building his case that the Gentiles stand guilty before God, the Jews stand guilty before God. He gets to the conclusion that all stand guilty before God. And so in Romans chapter 3, which will be the meat of our study, beginning in verse 10, Paul says, as it is written, are you, are you guys there? There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. And he goes on to say in verse 23, which is a verse that many of us know, for all have what? Sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And Paul is, is making the powerful argument that in our natural condition as, as human beings, in our, in our state, our condition apart from Christ, all of us, Jew, Gentile, Greek, Canadian, American, Ghanaian, whatever we are, all of us equally stand guilty before God. And he says especially even that there is no difference in the end of verse 22. Look at this. He says, I'm reading now Romans 3, 22, 2:23. As the righteousness of God is revealed through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe, because there is no difference, because all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And I wanted to emphasize that because we read Romans 3.23 as, you know, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. But right before Paul says all have sinned, he inserts that little phrase at the end of verse 22 that there is no difference. Do you see that? There is no difference. And what he's saying there is that, you know, sometimes what our personal sins and struggles may be hidden from the eyes of others. You know, we come to church where we're all dressed up, we look wonderful. You guys look wonderful this morning. Um, I was impressed when I walked in. Our internal struggles and sins are hidden from the eyes of others. And sometimes we think that the things that we struggle with are smaller than other people's sins, yes? Or that, you know what, my sins are not as, um, as bad or as terrible as person X is. Because, I mean, I haven't committed adultery. I haven't um, killed someone. 
But whether it's the little things of, um, you know, my pride or my envy or those things that are not visible to the naked eye, we tend to think they're smaller than those other bigger sins. But in the eyes of God, the reality is there is no difference between us. There is no big or small sin. All of us, Paul says, apart from Christ, all of us stand guilty before the Holy God. The beauty of what Christ has accomplished is that there is a but. Romans 3:21. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. You're asking Paul the question of justification. How does man stand before a holy God? Is man guilty or is man righteous before the divine judge? Justification and condemnation are both pronouncements of a judge. In a court of law, if you commit a crime and your case is being argued and the defense presents their argument why you should not be found guilty as charged and the prosecution will present their case of why you are indeed guilty as charged. The judge has two options and both of those options are his declaration based upon the evidence presented in the court of law. He can either declare you righteous or he can declare you guilty and condemn you. If he declares you righteous, he has justified you. If he declares you guilty, he has condemned you. And Paul's case is, if all of us stood before the divine judge without Christ, the unequivocal, clear, undisputed answer would be guilty as charged. But now, and the but is the beauty of the gospel that Paul says, but the righteousness of God is revealed. Because though we are guilty as charged, the moment we accept Christ, the moment we accept that kingly pardon that God has given us, God counts us righteous. He justifies. And Paul illustrates the beauty of what he's trying to say by going on to give us two Old Testament examples of righteousness by faith. When we talk about the cross of Christ and we talk about the work that Christ has accomplished on our behalf, I think sometimes we, we stand and often because we, we are so far removed from the cross, it's hard for us to, to really understand what it meant for the Son of God to become the substitute, the surety for our sins. You know, when you walk through Christ's experience and you come to those last moments of his life as he's walking to Gethsemane, Ellen White describes in the book, The Day of Ages, with, with profound prophetic insight, the depth of the agony that the Son of God went through for me and for you. And she describes the intensity of the conflict that, that tormented his mind, the Garden of Gethsemane, when the enemy pressed upon his mind the hopelessness of humanity. And the temptation was very real to walk away from it all, friends. And Brian so beautifully articulated last night that Christ is fully God and fully man. When he walked upon this earth and he's mingling with men and he's blessing children, he was still completely fully God. 
He was still the one who said, let there be light, and there was light. He was still the creative, all-powerful, all-knowing God. And so as he enters Gethsemane and, and he begins to bear in, in all of its fullness the guilt of the human race, you know, I, I don't have the, the words with which to articulate. The father begins to turn his face away from his son. How offensive is sin to a holy God? That as the son becomes the sin bearer, the burden bearer, and in Gethsemane, the father begins to turn his face away. And the, and the son feels the anguish and the pain of separation from the father. You know, I, I've never, you know, sort of fully understood, and I, I don't claim to even at this point, the, the, what it meant for the father to, to separate his beams of light from his son as the son became the propitiation for my sins and for your sins. I have a 22-month-old, um, almost two years old, and he's just getting to that point in his life where he is realizing that he has a will, you know, and he can say no, and um, he doesn't have to do everything that mommy and daddy says he must do. I did not know before our son was born how possible, and, and, and it, it's only even at this point still just a glimpse, but what it means to have such intensity of love that there is nothing you wouldn't do for that 22-month-old. You know, I, I cannot imagine. My son, you know, so I was in the bath one time. I was giving him a bath, and he loves his bath time. So I'm giving him a bath, and I literally, this is the thing with toddlers, and there are parents in this room who have more experience than me. I literally turned my back from the bath for one second. I don't even remember. It was not even two seconds. I turned my back. And the moment I turned my back, he reached out across the tub for something he wanted to grab. And then he slipped and he went backwards with a thud onto the bathtub floor. And that noise, when he hit the tub and fell, it shook me to my core. I turned around and I was like, it was one second, you know, two seconds. And the, and the thing that hurt the most about it, and even when I tell the story, I can still hear the thud of his head hitting the bathtub when he fell. It completely mortified me because it was like two seconds. Right? And, and your mind begins to race up, oh my goodness, he's hurt, his he's hurt his head. Like, you know, do I need to rush into emergency? Do I, and as a new mom, you panic, right? Because you're just, you're not accustomed. You know, toddlers fall all the time. But as a new mom, you just panic. He hit his head, you know, like, you know, brain injury or something, right? Um, and the panic in my mind was just that, that feeling of I couldn't protect him. I was watching him the entire time. But I turned away, and for those two seconds, I failed to protect him. And that sense of failure tormented me. You know, it took me several days to um, sort of get over that. And he was fine. You know, he, was, he went back to playing in the tub, running around as if nothing had happened, you know, because toddlers are just like that, right? But for me, that sense of I couldn't protect him just tormented me. You know, and so, which is why I say I cannot fathom what it was like for God the Father to watch his son 
in that garden of Gethsemane on the cross, wrestling with the powers of darkness, becoming the, the, the surety for my sins and your sins, bearing my sin and your sin, bearing my guilt and your guilt. And as a father looking at his son and turning away. Because a, you, your very instinct is to protect him, to save him from that. But the father turned away because of love for me and for you. He turned his face away. That is the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, the righteousness of God is revealed because of what Jesus has done, because of what God has done. We have been given pardon because of that. Because of a father's love, because of a son's love for a race that did not love him. And then the question is, will we accept that pardon? Paul illustrates his case by giving the example of Abraham. Romans chapter 4. <clears throat> Read with me from verse 1. Paul says, What then shall we say that Abraham, our father, has found according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness. Now to him who works, the wages are not counted as grace, but as debt. Paul is making the case and the argument here of a scripture that is familiar to many of us, that Abraham has nothing to boast about before God in verse 2. And the reason why Abraham has nothing to boast about before God has everything to do with what God has done and what Abraham has not done. Abraham has not fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law, but God in his grace and in the righteousness of God is revealed in this, that through the grace of God and the acceptance of the gift and the death of Jesus, Abraham's faith is counted to him as righteousness. And when Paul says that Abraham believed God, he's coding Genesis 15 verse 6. And I just love the simplicity of that statement. Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. Do you believe God? Do you believe God? You know, this past week it was rainy weather in Ottawa, which is where I live. And um, my son loves to play outdoors because it's summer. And if you live in Canada, you know that summers are short and precious. You know, so he loves to play outdoors in the summer. So it's raining and he wants to go outside. And he is at, standing by the door. He pulls my hand. He says, Mommy, outside, because now he talks, right? Mommy, outside, outside, park. So we stand by the door, and I tell him, look, Matty, his name is Matt. We call him Matt, Matthias, Matty. But I tell him, look, Matt, it's raining. We can't go outside, right? But when it stops raining, Mommy will take you outside. And then he says, okay. He goes 
finds his ball and starts playing ball around the house, which is another nightmare. <laughs> like a toddler playing ball around the house, right, right? Um, <laughs> but the point is that he understands, when I say to him, when it stops raining, mommy will take you to the park. For him, the fact that I say that is enough. He just says, okay, mommy will take me outdoors when it stops raining. In the meantime, I'll play ball, I'll play Legos, I'll create chaos in mommy's kitchen, but <laughs> I know that when the rain stops, mommy will take me outside. It's as simple as that, friends. He just believes, and I continuously marvel at the simplicity of his faith. You know, granted, as he gets older, he'll start to doubt and question, but I enjoy this time when whatever we say, he just says, okay, I know. Mommy will take me outdoors. Mommy is not denying me any pleasure. She just can't take me out right now. So I'll just wait, you know, until the rain stops and the time is right and I can go to the park with mommy. Do you believe God? The simplicity of a faith that says, okay. God says, not now, that's okay. I will go about my life faithfully. And when God says it's time, God will do what God has promised to do. Do you believe God? Abraham believed. And it was that simplicity of faith and trust that was credited as righteousness because of that faith in Jesus and that faith in the gift of God. Paul says, and when he's trying to explain what is it that Abraham believed, listen to this. In verse 18 of the same chapter, Romans chapter 4, Paul says, who, speaking of Abraham, contrary to hope, in hope believed. In other words, where there was no hope, Abraham believed in hope. Where hope was humanly impossible, he believed in hope. And Paul goes on to say, so that he might become the father of many nations, according to what was spoken, so shall your descendants be. And not being weak in faith, he did not consider his own body already dead, since he was about a hundred years old, and the deadness of Sarah's womb. He did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God, and being fully convinced that what God had promised, God was able to do. Do you believe God? The Bible says Abraham considered not the deadness of his own body or the deadness of Sarah's womb. The promise was, you will be a father of many nations. And Abraham believed that promise despite biology, despite medicine, despite human theory, and despite the, the seemingly logical thing that you are old, Sarah is old. There is no possible way a child can come of this union. But Abraham considered not that deadness of his body of Sarah's womb, but he simply counted on the promise of God. In our spiritual journey, too often we linger on the deadness of our hearts and the deadness of our spiritual lives instead of the promise of God. We focus too much on what we cannot do. We go through these cycles of, I've been struggling with this for years and years, and as maybe at this point God has just given up on me. And you know what? 
we are dead, all of us, in, our, in terms of our spiritual condition. There is no way any life or hope can come out of that deadness. But that is the beauty of the gospel, friends. That is the beauty of the gospel, that we don't consider the deadness of our spirituality or the deadness or the filthiness of our righteousness. We don't consider that. We simply consider the promise of God the kingly pardon already accomplished on the cross of Christ. That's what matters. Not my shame, my fear, my guilt, my, my filthiness. None of that matters. Abraham did not consider the deadness of his body. May we look away from the lifelessness of our walk apart from Christ and look instead to the promise of God. And this is where it ends because then Paul goes on to say, look, God credited Abraham's faith as righteousness because Abraham believed God. And I ask you again, do you believe God? Do you believe him? When he says, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Do you believe God? When he says he is able to do exceedingly abundantly above anything you can ask or imagine, do you believe God? When he says you are accepted in the beloved, do you believe God? When he says, I go away to prepare a place for you, and when I am gone, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Do you believe God? I want to conclude by reading the last, the first four or five verses of Romans chapter 5, where after laying out his argument, and we haven't, we, we've barely scratched the surface of it, but after laying out his argument of how God justifies the believer in Christ through faith and how God counts that faith, he doesn't count our sins against us, but he, he, he counts us as righteous in Christ because of our acceptance, key word is what? acceptance of what Christ has done. After making this argument, Paul says, then, therefore, the first word of Romans chapter 5 is what? Therefore. And when you see the word therefore, he's, 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 he's saying therefore based on everything that I have said before, correct? Therefore, based upon the, the beauty of the fact that God freely justifies by grace those who believe in God, therefore, because of this, what are we to do? Paul says, therefore, Having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. There are four things in these few verses that Paul says we have because of the gift of God, because of the gift of Christ, because of what the cross of Christ accomplished. Therefore, having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We have peace. Peace in a world that does not know what peace is. I don't know if you look around enough, but the world is a troubled place, friends. 
statistics indicate <clears throat> that in the United States, and of course I had to use the US statistics because no comment, but <laughs> I spared the Canadians, but one in five adults in the US, 43.8 million people, 19% of the population experiences some kind of mental illness or anxiety disorder in any given year. One in five, friends. That means 20% of us in this room, roughly, right? And that number is probably underreported because, of course, mental illness is underreported, yes? We don't like to talk about it. We don't like to talk about anxiety disorders. We don't like to talk about it. This is a state of the world where mental health is becoming a public health crisis, literally. It's the next big thing. In a world that is incredibly troubled, Paul says you and I have peace. Peace that passes understanding. Because of what? The cross of Christ. Being justified by faith through Christ, we have peace. Do you have that peace in your life? What else do we have? Paul says in verse 2, through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We have access to God. Because sin separates from God. We know that. But because of the gift of Christ, we have direct access to the king of the universe. To the boundless resources of grace, we have access. I sort of, um, you know, clearly learning and, and being a new mom, learning, I've come to appreciate the gospel so much more because there's just so many things I never expected to learn from becoming a parent. You know, and one of those things is, as I mentioned earlier, the simplicity of trust, but also the simplicity with which my son approaches either my, my husband or me. You know, and there are some times when my husband works from home. He's an engineer. Um, you know, so he has a home office where he, he works. And he travels back and forth for work, but oftentimes he's working in his home office um, and in the home. And so Matt will always, he knows when the door is closed to daddy's office that daddy is working. But even if daddy is working, he will go and knock on the door because now he knows how to knock, right? And often the knocking is just banging on the door, but he will bang. And you say to him, you know, Matt, daddy's busy. And he'll say, oh, daddy busy? But he'll keep knocking until daddy opens the door because he knows daddy will eventually open the door because daddy loves me, right? Like, I can come to daddy even if daddy is working at any time. Like, there's, no, there's never a question in his mind. There's never a, a doubt of, you know, will daddy... He just, he just knows. He just assumes it. He has direct access at any time, even at midnight, you know. When he wakes up and stands up in his crib and he's yelling, Daddy, Mommy, and he knows, right, that it's bedtime. But just because I can do that, I will wake up and scream for Mommy or Daddy. And he knows we'll get him even at 1 a.m. in the morning. 
Do you see the simplicity of that trust, friends? Access to God. At any time, at any place, we have direct access to the boundless resources of omnipotence. All of heaven stands ready to help us. So what excuse do we have for not growing in grace when heaven stands ready to help? Paul says we also have joy in verse 2. Through whom we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have joy. And then he goes on to say, not only that, but we also glory in tribulation. Knowing that tribulation produces patience. And patience, character, and character, hope. Now, hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Ghost who has been given to us. Because of what God has done in justifying by faith those of us who believe in and accept Jesus, we have hope. And that hope means, and when he uses that phrase, glory in tribulation, I don't know about you, but I cannot understand that. You know, the word tribulation here is not referring to just some, um, some, some little um, trial of, you know, I can't figure out my hair today, you know. Um, <laughs> this word tribulation is, is referring to those deep, heart-wrenching crises of faith that we go through. And Paul says we have hope even in those moments because of the cross of Christ, because of what Jesus has accomplished on our behalf. We have hope. We glory in tribulation. When our son was born, and some of you have heard parts of this testimony before. When our son was born, he had to be born by induced labor two and a half weeks early because I developed preeclampsia, which is pregnancy-induced hypertension, which came out of nowhere because I am a runner. I exercise. I've never had high blood pressure in my life. But here I was in the last weeks of my pregnancy, dealing with pregnancy-induced high blood pressure. So he had, to be in, he had to be induced, he was born, and when he was born, he did not breathe on his own. He did not breathe on his own. He had to be ventilated and then had to be airlifted to BC Children's Hospital, which is sort of the biggest um, children's hospital we have in BC, Canada, where he was born. He was treated there, um, monitored for possible internal organ damage because he had, he had suffered some kind of oxygen deprivation at birth. You know, so at that point, you don't, you don't know what the outcome is going to be, right? Um, miraculously, somehow, miraculously, he suffered no injury from that. 
But then what happened is just as we're getting ready to take him home, thinking everything, you know, he literally dodged a bullet because, and, and the doctors literally told us he dodged a bullet. Um, because for a child who did not breathe on his own for some minutes after birth, he could have suffered severe brain damage, internal organ failure, everything. We're getting ready to take him home when all of a sudden he catches a staph infection from the hospital, from somebody who probably touched his, one of his IVs and didn't wash his hands. We don't know how. He catches a staph infection that goes straight into his bloodstream. He's just seven days old. So that infection rapidly becomes sepsis. Sepsis being a systemic whole body infection where the bacteria is attacking organs in the body. The levels of inflammation in his body where doctors said we've never seen this kind of severe sepsis in a newborn. Going through different regimens of antibiotics, trying to treat the infection, and it was not responding to any antibiotic. And then we find out that the infection has crossed the blood-brain barrier, becomes meningitis. Becomes meningitis. And I, I'm standing here before you, obviously it's still very hard to talk about this, and I've never, some of you have heard parts of this testimony, there are some details I've never shared before publicly, and you're going through different antibiotics, trying to control this infection, because by the time it crosses that barrier and gets into the membranes surrounding the brain, it's, it's downhill from there. Miraculously, and to this day, we still don't know how, except to say that God has a special purpose for this little guy, because God granted him a complete recovery. He stayed in intensive care for two months, you know, two months where we couldn't take him home. We lived in the hospital. And... His doctors looking at the severity of his infection, you know, they measure what they call, um, the medical term is escaping me, but the, the level of inflammation in the blood, right? It's supposed to be under than 10 in, in a normally healthy person. His levels were 400, right? That's percentages that you can't even calculate, you know? He made a complete recovery. And granted, when he came home, he was underweight, he wasn't growing up because the infection took so much out of his body, you know, and there were things we had to deal with and some of it we're still dealing with. But I say this cautiously because I know that sometimes we go through those crises of faith and the outcome is not what we prayed for. And sometimes even if we get the positive outcome, the trial can be can feel like it's a marathon because things keep happening and things keep getting worse or something else even comes up. You know, and when Paul says that we glory in tribulation, we don't, we don't glory in tribulation because we don't feel the pain, but we glory in tribulation because 
Jesus died on the cross because God accepted Christ's death in my stead, because God gives us his free gift of grace, because God assures us that because of what Christ has accomplished, someday he is putting an end to suffering and pain and death. Because of his death, Jesus has already conquered death. So even though we go through these crucibles of faith, we have no need to fear death because of what the cross of Christ has accomplished. We glory in tribulation. I definitely did not glory in those two months in the hospital. I definitely did not glory through that first year of our son's life when we are back and forth to the hospital on an almost weekly basis for the entire first year of his life. And even today, we still have to go back and forth to monitor certain things. But you don't glory in the pain. You glory in what Jesus has done. I have two colleagues right now, two friends, both of whose mothers are dealing with breast cancer. I have a cousin who is dealing with bone cancer. I have a friend whose marriage is falling apart. And I'm saying this to say that we live in a world of pain. People are going through things. And I have no doubt some of us here are going through things. We have moments where we cry before God and we simply don't have the words to even pray because the heart hurts so much. Paul says we glory in tribulation knowing that tribulation works patience and patience character and character hope and hope does not disappoint. It never could disappoint. We have a hope that never disappoints, friends. And so I I encourage you to reflect upon this gift of God, the pardon that God has given, to let that give you peace, to let it remind you that you have access to God, to let it give you joy, and to let it give you hope in your most excruciating crisis of faith. And the reason why you can have peace and access to God and joy and hope is that Jesus has already done it all. He gives you his peace. He gives you his joy. He endured the most excruciating test of faith there ever was on the cross of Calvary. He endured that already for us. And because he has suffered, being tempted, he is able to do what? Succor them that are tempted. Therefore, we can have hope, friends. Let's pray. Eternal Father, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the gift of grace. We thank you for what it is that he has accomplished on our behalf. Father, we pray that we would accept 
his gift in our lives. We pray for peace, for joy, for hope, and we pray, Father, for an increase of faith. We ask that as we continue throughout the study this weekend of the plan of redemption, the sanctuary, and the cross of Christ, that you would continue to speak to our hearts and minds and inspire us, dear Lord, with greater and deeper love for you. We pray this humbly, believing and trusting that you hear us. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.